Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Roy Anderson. He's preparing our children with the different skills they must need for the AI-dominated world they will live and work in. Roy, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Kevin. It's really great to be here again. Yeah, I'm excited to have you back on the show. It's been a couple of years now since we last chatted. Well, in person, we, we exchanged some emails, to be fair. But uh, I thought we should have you back on the show to talk about what you're doing now. Well, I guess you continue to do because I think what we're going to talk about today is even more relevant now than it was even a couple of years ago. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, because the world is changing faster sure. than we realize. So for people that never heard the first interview, do you maybe want to give us a bit of background on yourself, your education, and uh, give us uh, a little bit of what you've been doing the last few years up until what you're doing today? Yeah, okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, I suppose it began, goes way back to when I was a child in school. I, I would go to school every day, never understood really what was happening. Um, I was kind of nervous about the teacher asking me a question because I would never be okay. able to give the right answer. Okay. Um, I got marks, you know, average marks like 5 out of 10, 6 out of 10, never got 9 out of 10, you know. I know one or two girls did, but I, I, I just couldn't reach that standard. I never knew why. I just accepted the mark that the teacher gave me. And then when I was 17 and I took my final examinations, I failed every single one. Every single examination they put me into after 12 years of school, I failed. In fact, I didn't just do badly. I completely failed it. I got U, which meant unclassified. And it was a great shock to me. Um, and I thought, what can I do now um, in my life? Uh, because my dreams about being a doctor for Jordan were completely shattered. The reality was that uh, I wasn't um, qualified to do anything. So I went into a factory and I walked seven miles every day to this factory job. Wow. And I remember wow. very distinctly on the way back uh, one day, I, I watched a leaf fall from a tree. And I noticed that when the leaf fell from the tree, how the p pattern of the leaves changed. And then when the leaf fluttered down to the ground, how that also changed the pattern of the, of the leaves on the ground. And then I, I wondered if I could change my intelligence in some way. And then I began to devise thinking strategies. I would try to remember different things in different ways as I walked every day. And then I went into the army and that taught me a great thing because one day we had to run up this big hill in, in threes. And the sergeant in charge said, you know, the last one up there has to come down and do it again. And bang, you know, we went off and I started running up. Then I was, I was in front and then it was a very steep hill. And then one man overtook me. And then another one pulled my leg down and over, overtook me. So I was the third one. When I got to the top, I, you know, completely breathless and eyes bulging out of my head, uh, I was told to go down and do it again. And I realized I just couldn't do this. I, I couldn't keep on doing this. I had to win. And so when we started again, 
I did get to the top. Interesting. And, uh, Interesting. and that changed my whole life. I realized then that if I had to do something, I really could. So I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to go back to school. So I, I left the army. And then I went uh, to a college to, to resit my school examinations. Um, and they told me that I wasn't I wasn't, el- I wasn't eligible uh, to, to even to begin to do the school uh, examinations. They wouldn't accept me. I was too low. So I went into a shop and I bought a book, How to Learn English and How to Learn Mathematics. And I taught myself. And three months later, I reset the examination. And then for the first time, they came top in mathematics and second in English of the um, participants to, to go back to college. And that was really different for me then. So then I went back to college and then I realized that I had to take control. I couldn't trust the teachers anymore. I had to do it all by myself. I couldn't trust anybody. I couldn't trust information. I had to learn everything. And at the end of the first year, I was the top student. And when I left after three years of this, I had enough qualifications to get a medical university to be a medical doctor. But instead of that, I wanted adventure. So I traveled around the world. I went to join the Navy and I went to sea. Um, and then as my life moved on, I really wanted to help children. And um, in my 30s, I I thought it would be possible to become a, a, you know, a PhD. So I contacted a professor in England, and he said, well, come meet me. So I'd actually then moved to Denmark, and I went back to England, and um, I met this professor. And he said to me, well, we'll accept the fact that you don't have a, a bachelor's degree, but we'll, with your life experiences, we'll give you a, put you on a master's. But you must... Um, uh, live within the uh, faculty. But then I'd already settled in Denmark, so I thought I don't want to go back to England. Um, so I thought, well, I'd do it by myself. And I had no concept at that time, really, of how to study what a citation was or anything. And um, by supporting myself and my family, little crazy little jobs here and there, I spent 10 years dedicated my life totally to try to to develop an understanding of why children fail in school. And so without knowing anything about genetics, neurology, social science, political science, molecular technology, because technology drives the society and therefore the education prepares the child for that, um, I became very, very proficient in these subjects. And um, after some years, I began to, they began to come together and I began to see a picture that very few people had as to really why we have education and therefore why we're failing it today. And then I began to write uh, these books. Um, Essentially, I began, as I mentioned, like a a dissertation. But then I thought, why am I doing this? And first of all, because, well, if I'm a doctor, people will listen to me. But then I thought, the real thing is I want to reach the parents because it's really the parents who control education, not the teacher. It's the parents, by the way, they, they... raise the child before school and how they support them and guide them through it. And so I rewrote those books, seven of them. Well, at that time, there was only five and uh, maybe a hundred times each. It's over and over, trying to make something that was written in a language that senior academics uh, preferred to a language that the normal parent of whose second language was English would understand and enjoy. And in that, I was grateful to be acceptable. Um, accepted, um, as many people around the world say, these are 
some of the best books written about school society and learning, and they come from professors of institutions everywhere. Um, And then uh, I was working in Japan um, for nine years. I was a lecturer in one of the best medical universities there. And then there was the the tsunami. And at that time, I was in Thailand. Um, And because of the radiation, I I didn't go back. I mean, I was told by my professor, come back, it's it's very safe. But I didn't didn't believe that. I didn't trust the government uh, regarding to... Um, radiation. So I stayed in Thailand uh, until I got uh, appendicitis, and that developed in peritonitis, and I really nearly died. And then I went back to England uh, to see my mum, and um, then I again rewrote those books and finally got them published. And then about just about 18 months ago, then I really started to want to reach people. So I decided that I, I couldn't do it from living in a house in England. So I started to travel. And last year, I I trained teachers in um, Algeria, England. I spent five months in Nepal, and I trekked right into the Himalayas to reach very remote communities and people who almost almost never actually seen a tourist. Um, And and, and I lived really in a very, um, I mean, they're they're so poor there, really. I mean, we talk about poverty in England, as you may do in Canada and America, but when you go to places like Nepal, I mean, it's it's incredible. Uh, they, they really have nothing, really nothing. But the, the hearts are beautiful. And in fact, that's why I'm going back again. And so from Nepal, I went, I went to India and to, of course, um, Kashmir and then to Turkey and then uh, Thailand and then Australia. And um, this year I went to Australia again and now I'm in Indonesia. And in two weeks, I go back to Nepal. Um, and very nice people, and I hope to be able to go to South America soon. I want to visit people in Peru and Colombia and Argentina, and wherever I can. I'm trying desperately, so really desperately, to help teachers to realize really what they're doing wrong. Teachers today, well, okay, you want to ask me a question because we can go on like this. No, no, keep going. It, it, this is good. It's interesting. Okay, right. So basically... You know, going back to really what started me off was that um, I was in Denmark and I wondered if children still had the problems to learn as I did when I was a child, because as I mentioned, I completely did everything. I never knew why. And then when I went back, um, it was incredible. I was so successful. And so I went around to schools and I would talk to teachers and said, you know, what's really causing this variation? And... They basically said to me, well, you know, it's not our fault. It's what the kids are born with or because of social circumstances. But it was the key that what they are born with. And so in the minds of the teachers, uh, and so we may say civilization, children perform in school according to what they are born with. But then I thought, well, if I look at my life, you know, when I was 17, they said Roy had come from a very low quality genes. Then when I was 24, they said, wow, Roy came from very high quality genes. And I thought, well, that doesn't really work. So <laughs> yeah. as I explained, I began to study you know, genetics, neurology, and all these things. And then I really devised a new theory of intelligence, which I call the brain environmental complex. And in this process, I explained really, well, first of all, my, okay, so my books. The first book is called The Illusion of Education. Now, The Illusion of Education explains why we politically do not educate children how to reason and how to think. 
as I mentioned earlier, um, the the school today still works on a 19th century design to produce either the manager or the managed. And to do this, it processes children on the ways that they've been raised to think by the parents and emotionally driven to recognize information. So the kid goes to school according to the ways the parents have prepared them. The teacher gives out information. The children respond. The teacher marks 10 out of 10, 3 out of 10, 5 out of 10, whatever. And it goes on lesson by lesson, year by year. And Basically, the child is processed on the background skills from their parents, plus any incentive they may want to be or anything that drives them to be a doctor or an astronaut or whatever it is, and minus the abuse or bullying they incur. And this is a very serious factor I will mention shortly. So the illusion of education explains basically why we're going wrong in education. As we are, as so many teachers are leaving education at a frightening number, I mean, last year, I, I think America loses like 200,000 every year. England is, or, is proportionally the same. And we are losing masses of teachers because they're sick and tired of the politicians interfering with the examinations, with the way that they work, and so the way that they can live their lives. They're underpaid, as most uh, teachers are around the world. And... And there's a great despondency within teachers just to say, I can't do this anymore, I've had enough. And I meet teachers everywhere who say to me, I'm screaming, I've got to get out of here. And of course, you may want to say that, well, what's happening here? Why, you know, the teachers are the most responsible person in the society because they are preparing the future generation. Yet we, we are, we may say the politicians, are creating a, a situation where teachers don't want to be there. Why are they doing that? And so, so then you say, well, okay, if they got rid of the teachers, then of course they would save a lot of money, but then they could replace the teachers with software programs. So instead of having a human teacher teaching 30 kids, we will, and in some situations it's already happening, you can have a classroom of 100 or theoretically 1,000 uh, desks, computers, and students sitting down with no teacher but some supervisors saying, sit down, shut up, work hard, you know. Um, what, what's, and that's the way education is going. And we don't really realize it. But because of the fact that they're causing teachers to leave, this, it's opening up this possibility for the human teacher to be replaced by software programs. And so where is it all going? And this is what my first book talks about. Because when you, when you raise child or, or well, children, students, through software programs, they are excited, they are re relating, re reacting to the information they're fed upon, but there's no spirit here. There's no kindness, there's no drive, there's no humanness. And so we are producing a citizen for the future who's less able to relate to other human beings. And, and, and this is a very, very serious problem. They're, so the we say the next generation, and so therefore more so uh, less uh, the children they produce will be less empathetic, they'll be less able to consider the feelings of other people. I mean, it's happening now, you know, if I, if I, if I have a problem, I, 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 I call a company, and they say, well, okay, we're, we're here to help you. Uh, what's the problem? I say, well, it's this, oh, no, so we don't fit, you don't fit into a box. I say, well, okay, can I talk to the manager? What do you know the manager's name? No, I don't. Sorry, then we can't help you. <laughs> it's already happening. We, we're losing this humanness of, of compassion in our society and it's being driven by this interface that we are um, developing through this digital world 
Um, so there was a great need to to change education to make to keep the human teacher because it's it's the human teacher that will raise the human qualities within the child and the citizen of the future, and that's desperately what we need when they will be living under uh, you know artificial intelligence. Then, of course, um, that explains the point that. Why don't we teach children how to reason, how to think? Well, as I explained to you, society never really wants that. They just want the general citizen just to be able to comply with the direction given by the politicians, the platitudes, etc. That's what we are raised upon. And children in school are raised on dualistic thinking, yes or no, basically to do that. I mean, we talk about critical thinking, but it doesn't work. It doesn't actually change the way the children think. They just play a game in a lesson or in a classroom, but it doesn't alter the way they actually think. And so what I say is that we need to desperately incorporate a subject, a whole subject into the curriculum, how to think, how to reason better. And, you know, people in the past have done this. Um, Benazit in America in the 1930s, he took out, um, he realized that children were learning arithmetic in the primary years just by rote learning, you know, memorizing two, two times two is four and things like that. And he thought, if I take, if I take, arithmetic out of the syllabus and replace it with learning skills, what would happen? So he went to some poor schools where the parents didn't know what was going on. He took arithmetic out and he taught them how to think reasoning skills for five years. But when those kids then went to the higher school, they performed better in mathematics after the first year than the kids who'd done arithmetic and mathematics in the primary years because they'd learned how to think and how to reason. Incidentally, his work was then taken up by uh, Matthew Lippin, who created the Pixie Stories, where children learn how to reason through the adventures of the stories. Unfortunately, that you know that was washed out by the politicians who kept on processing kids, so that wasn't really taken any notice of. And this is really what we need to do. I mean, if you go to any psychology book, it will tell you that the founder of, of intelligence testing is a man called Alfred Binet in France, who developed the first intelligence test. He never did. Binet never designed an intelligence test. He simply was able to devise a way of um, evaluating a child's learning problems to find out if the child who had a learning problem was so because of some organic problem or because of a social social problem. That's all he ever did. In fact, Binet said you can't measure intelligence. That was, however, uh, well, there's a whole big story here, which goes into my second book, The uh, Hidden Secrets of Intelligence Revealed, which explains really why we have this belief that intelligence is inherited. Um, no, no, it, it's interesting because I, I think the thing that I've seen just as, um, just as you work with younger generations even and, and work other coworkers and, and whatnot is it seems to me that the skills that are not taught in school, like, I was joking with a buddy the other day, actually, he, he's a teacher, and I, I told him, I said, there's so much stuff that I just don't use that I learned growing up, um, especially some math stuff, some history stuff, and I literally have, think I've just completely flushed it out of my brain because if I ever need to know some of that stuff, I can just look it up online quickly, right? Like... If somebody asked me a date in history about certain things, I could tell you at one point because I had I got tested on it, but I'm sure all that stuff's just gone. I could maybe take a guess at it, but 
for the most part, I feel like anything I could quickly just Google, I've just let it go from my brain. And, and he was kind of mortified when I told him that. But I think in a lot of cases, we teach this stuff that, you know, that kids don't need to learn eventually or will use in their careers, right? And we don't teach them things that no matter what they do later in life, they they will need. Do you know what I'm getting at there? Absolutely, and you're totally right. So it comes back to really why do we have school in the first place? We like to think that we have schools so that we can enlighten minds, we can enable the children to expand their understanding of the world and enjoy life better because of it. Sure. It's not true. Sure. It's not why we have school. If that was the reason, we'd have no problem with budget. The reason why schools are ill-funded and why they exist the way they do is because they have a basic purpose to produce the next working citizen. And as I mentioned to you before, the design of this is to either produce the manager or the managed. And basically, school doesn't teach children how to reason, as I explained to you previously, purposely, because it, that doesn't want the, the quality re the citizen to do that. So the way school works is that, first of all, the purpose of school originally was to take the chaotic, happy, fun-loving attitude of children and to discipline them to follow rules. So as soon as the child enters the system, they are taught to think through rules. Don't do this, do this. Sit down, don't move, pick up the pen. If you want to go to the loo, you must put your hand up. Um, you can't be free. And so the child from a very young age is disciplined to think to think by rules. And the problem here is that if the child has a good educated parents to help them to understand this before they go into the system, then they are more likely to, to relate to these rules and so follow them and then keep up with them. School is all about rules and therefore they, they develop a, a mind more adaptable to, to working with these rules so they, they learn them better and they're more proficient in responding. But most kids, of course, don't have that. They are distracted, bored, confused, and therefore they remember some rules and not others. And therefore, when they're learning a subject, for example, then they can't find the rule to go from A to B so they get stuck. And then they see what the kid next to them is doing and they, they copy or they put their hand up and they wait and the teacher doesn't have time to help them. So they guess. And when they guess, they get it wrong. So we, we take out the creativity in the mind of children purposely so that they will learn just to follow the rules. And, and by the ability or the background to keep up with these rules, they succeed or they fail. And then at the end of the system, those who have kept up with the rules because the mother is the great driving force. It always has been in education. You know, the mother gives security, love, kindness, belief in herself. And unfortunately, I meet too many fathers who destroy that. You know, the fathers are worried about the child not getting the right education or getting the right job. So they say, you know, you must work harder, work harder. Um, you're not working hard enough. Stop messing around work. And that kills the spirit. And then the child's lost that enjoyment to want to, to want to learn and becomes bored and then they get distracted and their grades go down. Um, um, anyway, so just to get back to my, my, my second book, because, <laughs> we you know, um, the uh, Hidden Secrets of Intelligence Revealed, it goes back over 250 years to explain the lies, the fraud, the deceit by people within society and then by the early psychologists to try to prove that an ability is inherited to ensure that there is a kind of 
stability in the social mechanism. So the people higher up, you know, you might say the king or the queen, and, and, and then, um, you know, the administrators, the, the professional classes today, there is an opportunity specifically for their children because their children came from better able genes. Whereas children who came from, you know, cleaning the floor people, um, which I'd done for many years, well, they're not, they're not eligible. They're not said to be have the same quality genes to be anything else. So in the 19th century, there was a great design to don't think you're better than your parents. Well, so then I explained basically that um, in 1848, there was a revolution in Paris that sparked and it shot right through every country in Europe, except for England at that time, because of a particular reason. And the kings and queens fled their countries, all the countries in Western Europe, thinking they might be executed like the French king the previous century. And they went to England, but they came back later with militia and soldiers and squashed this rebellion. Many people were executed. I think it was like 3,000 people were dragged out of their homes on the 30th of June in, in 1848 in Paris and just executed in the streets. There was a great Amazing. movement just to quash this rebellion of people desiring freedom. And then from 1848 until 1914, the First World War, there was a whole spies, networks, informers trying to monitor the rise of socialism and to try to suppress it. Um, and this, and then this was ingrained into people. You know, they would go to church and they would be told. There was actually a hymn, I can't remember the name of it now, which actually came about that just after Karl Marx produces Communist Manifesto, which, which explains to people, don't think that you're better than you are. God made you as, you, as your mother and father is. Um, and this was drilled into the consciousness of people when they would go to church on Sundays and every day when they would do the school assembly. And it was a, it was a mindset. Don't think that you can be better than your parents. And this was this underlay this idea of 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 trying to create a kind of stability within the society. And then my work discovered that there was a man called Francis Galton who wrote a book called Hereditary Genius in 1869. And this lay kind of a quasi-scientific basis to prove that intelligence was inherited. And he spent all his life trying to uh, devise a mechanism and prove he never actually did. Um, and But Galton set was so uh, supported by the establishment and by the newspapers, you know, uh, and the media at that time, that there was a movement moved throughout the whole of our civilization to try to explain that any performance of somebody is related to something that they're born with. And then, of course, I go through all the uh, intelligence um, schemes and, and theories and, and I disprove them all and, and show that really they're just based on misinformation and um, in some cases lies and fraud. Uh, uh, well, for example, look at 1994, the bell curve produced in America. It was supposed to, it was a huge book, supposed to explain that uh, black people um, by the ancestry would be 15, 15 uh, points lower on a intelligence scale than white people um, because of their genetic background. It was it was based on mis uh, misuse of information. When we examined the data, none of the data correlated. It was just fabricated book. Yet it, yet the media gave it a great uh, impetus, and a lot of people actually believed it. And, of course, it had a political program. It was designed to make sure that 
people in America who were Hispanic or, or, or who were black and essentially therefore not white um, would then be deprived of better education because the money should not be wasted on them because they didn't have the capability to make use of it. So the money then should be diverted to essentially white children. We had the same thing in England. Uh, there was a guy called um, Cyril Burt who actually falsified data and his influence uh, um, directed education for over 70 years in England. That's uh, crazy. So, That's crazy. So, yeah. So, I mean, he falsified data. He was a senior psychologist and he, he made this test data and he just fabricated test results to try to prove that children who came from right wing or higher, higher class were therefore more capable because of their genes and therefore, therefore the government should put money towards schools in their area more because those kids will have better opportunity, can make better opportunity, whereas kids from the left wing, uh, poor areas, would make, less, would make less use of the opportunity, so don't waste the money. And, and it really worked. And of course, it wasn't just in England at that time, because then England was, you know, Great Britain and the Commonwealth and Australia, South Africa, India, wherever. And this mindset just went throughout, uh, throughout the whole world. And so today, the teacher in the class will have a kid who doesn't understand and the teacher will try to look, I'm trying to tell you one and one is two. Why can't you understand? And the child looks at them blank and the teacher says, well, it's not my fault. It's where the kid's born that way. And because I was that kid, I knew it's wrong. And therefore I wanted to find out really how the brain works. So then I studied neurology and I was very grateful for the very, very uh, high level people in America and in um, Denmark who, who gave me their time and helped me to understand really how the brain works. And so I wrote my third book, The Brain Environment Complex, which really goes into how the mind drives the brain and how the brain networks actually um, begin in the embryo, the fetus, and then how they develop after life through the way that the changes and chemistry and things like that. And, and then uh, what I realized, it all comes down to sensitivity. If the mind of the child and the same for you and me at any age, is calm, happy, secure, and interested, or if not fascinated, then we can relate to information. And then we're therefore, when we're reading something, we're hearing something, we're very clear. We, we choose things that we know are relevant, and then we relate this very clear information in our mind to information, memory in our brain, to information we've previously stored because we were interested in that. So we make this connection very fast and very rapid. And very accurately. And then be, then by this experience of this information, we know what to do with it. So then the smart kids, the ones we think are genetically very, very clever, well, the ones who know the answer very fast, they're not. They're not, they're not. they're no different than the other kids. It's just that there was some factor within them that drove them to keep up with the beginning of the lesson, with each lesson as it went along. And this, of course, fed their ego. You know, the top kid knows he's the best, and therefore he wants to be the best. He's frightened of not being, of falling down. So he's propelled by this inner drive. And then for... Um, then when the teacher asks the question, it's always the same child who puts his hand up and knows the answer, and it's the same child who gets the top marks and then goes to university, blah, blah, blah. Whereas most children, and most in any educational level, um, most of the people in the class are really there because they've got to be there. Their minds and other things. 
and therefore they are being half interested and half disinterested. And therefore this information that they're putting into the mind is not as accurate, not as clear. So they can't relate to it very fast. And therefore very often because of poor language skills, they can't adequately explain the thinking in their minds. So they get lower marks. They don't get the top marks. They get five out of ten, seven out of ten, eight out of ten, whatever. Then, and then of course But but what's your thoughts around because like part of well I, I like I, I guess I've always seen education as realistically there's people that are um have like PhDs and then there's people that barely graduated high school if at all that end up being super successful. So in, in my experience, kind of being successful in life and, and, and whatever that means and, and let most people put a financial tie to success that really economic background or race or even how smart you were in school really doesn't have anything to do with how successful you will or can be later in life. Do you agree with that? Is that what you found? Normal people, the, 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 the normal people are conditioned when they, or the normal child is conditioned when they go through school to follow rules. Those who are able to keep up with those rules, as I mentioned, are the ones who are successful. And of course, as the, as the brain, as the physical brain interacts with information, and it's driven by the, if you like, the, the ego, the, the drive behind it, so, so the brain is more effective in how it makes, how the neurons connect and, and, and so expand. Um, and, and therefore, their brain develops to be better with this kind of information. And so they are the people you might like to say who become the PhDs because they followed the rules. But you take a PhD and you put him on a building site, you'd be completely lost. Um, but I know because I lived on a building site. But, it, it, but then you've got the occasional kid in the school who rebels against the system. They, they just didn't fit in. And sure. they, 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 they are... They want to reject because they say, I am not following these rules. I am me. I am a human being. I'm not going to be following everybody else. And it's that kind of rebellious nature within them that when they leave school, they fight. They fight to succeed and therefore they do succeed. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, I think they end up happier and in, in a lot of cases more successful than the people that conform. Right. At least in my experience anyway, especially in the tech scene it's it seems to be the people that are willing to take risks and 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 try to challenge the status quo that end up more successful because Absolutely. they they change something right and yeah it, it's interesting because yeah but that's right i mean if you go back, if you come back to what i said about rules sure when we when the when the child is is raised to follow rules they're conditioned to think through those sure. rules and for if they're not sure of the rules they don't know how to think and they're waiting for somebody else to tell them what to do. And they are the normal citizen. Yeah. So the normal citizen comes out of school, really thinks by the rules that they've got. Uh, I mean, that's very obvious. When a 17-year-old uh, leaves school and goes to work, they don't, know how to, they don't know how to think. They don't know what to do. You know, it takes them a time to, to change the way that they think about the world to be able to become a reliable worker. So then how do you um, inspire adults that went through that system and maybe conform to actually start potentially thinking and, and maybe doing their own thing, like by starting their own business or something 
how do you change that mindset to to give them the confidence to to know that they can do this or they can chase their passions and their dreams and and maybe start a side business or or go in full full time how do you change that mindset look at the television okay you know look at the normal life of a citizen they, they get up in the morning, they go to work, they come home, they eat their dinner, they watch the television. Television kills the brain cells. Game shows, um, drama shows. There's very few entertainment within the, within the evening that actually inspires them to want to change anything. They are conditioned just to follow the pattern. Um, uh, if, you're going, if you're going to change that, then you need some kind of an education that wakes people up. And it, but there again... We are we are trapped. You know, school doesn't teach you. School teaches you many useless things. Like you said before, it doesn't teach you the real world. It doesn't teach you how to use money. Sure. So when 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 the child leaves school and they go and they get a job, they wow, I've got a job. I can earn money, and I can buy this, and I can buy that. Oh, and I can borrow money because it's so easy to borrow. And then they get debt. And that's what it's all about. They don't know how to use the money, so they get into debt. And then one debt gets into that, and then they can't escape. So they have to keep within the job. They may dream, oh, one day I'll, I'll be a, a millionaire. I'll, I'll buy a car, and I'll sell the car, and I'll buy another car. A few people do that, but most of them don't have that freedom. They're purposely deprived of that by the debt system. Sure. Um, Interesting. So... Uh, yeah, um, but let me go on to my next book because the sure. preparing a new world education. Um, there's a great section of that. Well, first of all, the, the first part explains kind of things that t teachers do wrong, and, and in in teaching children, you know how they could teach them better. But then it goes into the probable reality of the world that our children, certainly our grandchildren, will live and work in. And here I talk about, we talk about a lot about the fourth industrial revolution. That's wrong. There is no fourth industrial revolution. There was one industrial revolution from 1750 to 1950. After that, we had the technological revolution and we had the computer revolution. And now we've got nanotechnology. And what the reality here is that consider that right now that in our environment, we, we manufacture so much it's artificial by the mass molecular change of of, of atoms. So, for example, we take iron ore from the ground, we melt it by temperature, and then we make it into steel and, and, and things like that. And we, we, we weld it and we cut it and then we fashion things so we can have cars and things like that. And we take oil from the ground and we, by temperature change, we, we, we move those molecules into gases and plastics. And so everything in our world is by the temperature change of molecules. That's it. Just like there's, there's no fineness here. Now, nanotechnology, and it's really developing, is going to change all that. Nanotechnology has the ability to move atom by atom. And so there's kind of two machines that are developing here. And, and actually, there are proto-models of these that actually work. There are two kinds of them. One is a disassembler and the other is an assembler. Now, the purpose, now these are so, I mean, you can't see them, you know, the, the nano size. And they're invisible to the eye. But these machines go into any substance, rock, soil, wood, clay, whatever. And according to the computer program inside them, they analyze the molecular structure. And then, then they dissemble this, the molecules. Another machine goes in called an assembler, knits these molecules together to create uh, a particular molecular compound. And then, and then the whatever the computer 
designs it to produce. So one machine will then create another machine and another and another and another. And then the idea is that according to computer program, these machines link together to create the molecular structure of any mass so designed. So it can be a, a, a tabletop or the floor you're standing or the curtains or the walls or the, the cup you're holding or the, the computer you're working with all linked together. There's no more manufacturing of this. It's all created by little machines linked together. Change the, change the um, uh, design by machine face systems, essentially just change the computer design, flick a switch, those machines come apart and they make something else and then something else. Or they can disappear into the air and then reassemble to make something else. This is the reality that we are, well, I would say slowly, but you don't know how fast it's actually happening, moving into. Now, if you then look, and this is really what drives me here, if you then look at uh, any any society, you've got 70 or 80% of the people employed in the creation of our artificial world, you know, manufacturing and selling and administration and, and transport and servicing, all the things that we have. Well, we don't need those people in the future. The only people that we were essentially leading in the society are those who service the human element, you know, like health workers and nursing and those kind of people. And, and so then you're going to have a situation in the future where the society will require a certain type of people and there will be opportunities for their, for their children so that their children will have a good education, good, good standard and, 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 and be able to develop their understanding of the world and they'll be better be prepared for their, for their jobs. But the greater mass of people will essentially have no job or menial jobs because machines will do everything. And that means, therefore, that those people who don't have a job or have a low income are not supported very well, will want what the other, what the people the other people have got. So they'll try to move into their area, and the people say, hey, "We don't want you. You know, while life is stable, we don't want we don't want you uh, messing it up." So they create electronic physical barriers, and then we are going to move into a situation where there will be a higher class of people and a lower class of people. And the higher class of people will try to will control the lower class of people. And then you will not no longer have this variation of what we might like to say success in our societies. There will be those who have and those who have not. And then, of course, the big danger then is that those who have not will be will live in a deteriorating world. Drug, alcohol, abuse, so all, the, also, all those will go up. And in this negative world, those kids will have less opportunity to develop. So they'll never be able to be a part of the of the of the other group, and then uh, you don't um, think the internet for, levels that playing field a bit? Yeah, it kind of does. But because yeah, like if you give kids talk. access to the internet, they can, I think, get around a lot of the those walls that are put up by corporations or, or other things right like people in suppressive countries like china figure out how to get around their censored internet and actually get the content that they want do, do you think that that type of stuff will happen to basically counteract what what you were just talking about interesting but look at the way how it's all controlled i, I mean 
you know, we like to think that information is not free, uh, but it's still control. I mean, in some countries you can't use, I think it's Facebook or Yeah, but you can get around WhatsApp. that, right? I, I think people will figure, have figured that out and will continue to figure that out. It's always like a cat and mouse type game, but like... Yeah, yeah, maybe so, but not the general mass, you know? You will get individuals who know how to play the game and they'll be free until they get caught. <laughs> but the general mass we're talking about here will not... They just put the blinkers on and they'll plod along. And as the world will change. Um, so, uh, I don't think that this freedom of knowledge, this freedom of information the internet provides is going to change that financial scenario where there will be a select number of people required by the society and those who will not be. And then we'll have two factors within a, within a, within a landmass, within a society. I don't think it's going to change. I wish it would. And that's why I dedicate my life to try to explain to people that we've got to stop producing the child of today on this, uh, on this 19th century model citizen. We need to create a new citizen in the future. And schools, and there's only schools that can do that, although uh, we need the parents working with the schools to do that, to teach kids how to reason and how to think so that they are more flexible in their reasoning, higher adaptable in their intelligence, and of course, more compassionate, more tolerant. And this is the kind of citizen that we need to create. And we're not doing that. All we're doing right now is producing a sort of a person who reacts on their emotions and the rules that we thought uh, raised to, to follow. Um, and so they wrote the politicians that we have. Um, no, fair. I, I agree with that. I, I don't think we're educating people and kids properly. And I also don't think we're instilling the confidence in kids today or may, potentially ever that they have the ability to do their own thing. And I was actually having this conversation with um, this investment banker at a, a wedding a few weeks ago. And obviously, super intelligent guy, makes a lot of money. And we were talking about just technology coming into his space. And I, and I said to him, I finally said to him, I said, well, do you want to be the one building the technology or involved in building the technology that will potentially take out your job? Or do you want to be the one that the technology wipes out your job? And he kind of looked at me funny and, and he was kind of like, yeah, I never really thought of it like that. Right. And the sad reality, I think, for a lot of people is if you're not in technology and you don't understand technology, you should probably start understanding it because in a lot of cases, it's maybe maybe it won't wipe out your job, but technology is going to invade every industry if it hasn't already. And I think we've been seeing that right already. And I think it freaks some people out. And the sad reality is it probably like for better or worse, the sooner people get on it and actually start learning and maybe trying to build their own technology in the industry that they're currently in, the better off they'll be and their kids will be in the long term. Do you, do you agree with that? I read in a newspaper or a magazine that in the next 20 years, 30% of jobs in London will be done by robots. But does that mean that just the like tedious tasks that they that most people don't enjoy anyway and they can do other things? Or does that mean that their job's gone completely or somewhere in the middle? 
Well, I don't actually know. I, the article, article didn't go into that. But but the the meaning behind it is that we are losing jobs to artificial intelligence. Sure. And we can't stop that. So it's very nice to say, look, you know, get technical. Don't get left out of the rat race. You know, get technical. But really, <laughs> there's a limit to how much we can get technical. And, and <clears throat> we are racing against machines that can actually train themselves to take over. So we, we've got computers now that can, well, the computers now can do two things. They can design themselves and they can design themselves to be human. So sure. you can go to a computer, have a conversation, and the computer can get angry with you, and that's really frightening. Um, so it's great to say, you know, you know, hey, man, wake up, get with the technology. But what does it really mean? It means that you're, you're buying into software products but then you're dependent upon those software products, and and how f and they they are always advancing and changing and developing, and they go and they're taking over. So the more you get into it, actually, the more you're stuck with it. True. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. But I also think that that's already happened. Like people depend on their smartphone and their software day in and day out. And this, the, I think, the more and more you understand about what's happening the better off you'll be long-term and be able to adapt for the coming changes that technology will bring to those industries. Because isn't it kind of similar though to the industrial revolution? Like that wiped out a bunch of jobs back then and the technology revolution is going to wipe out a bunch of jobs now or in the near future. Yeah. Okay. But the difference is, is that now, and of course then and, and, Almost up till now, there's always been a human being in the in the in in, in the situation, um, but now the jobs now the machines will take over everything, including the administration. Well, I don't know if it'll ever get that far, right? Like I guess some probably in some situations, it could take over. I, I just don't know if it's all doom and gloom, but. Could be. I guess time will tell, right? And we'll we'll figure it out, hopefully, as a society. Or maybe it'll wipe us out, or maybe it won't be as bad as some people think it's going to be, right? And I guess we can all make guesses around that and have opinions around that, but until it actually kind of happens, we don't really know. Well, um, you know, we live a life day by day. You know, we, we just plod along, and uh, as I said to you, we're conditioned by the stresses and the debt that we live under. But if you look beyond that, I mean, look how look how radically we've lost our freedom in the last 20 years. You can't go anywhere now without the system knowing where you are, who sure. you are. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember when I was 19, I could just basically go anywhere in the world, just, just hitchhiking, whatever I wanted to. It's, yeah. it's impossible to do that. So we don't have that same freedom, but we don't notice it because it's kind of gone slowly and it's taking over. Uh, it's taking over our liberty and our ability just to do what we want to do. And for, we are conditioned not to think to be free, as I mentioned to you by the junk that comes out of the television. No, but basically, fair. okay. So basically, what what I'm trying to do is to find some way to cause the political system to design it a curriculum that teaches children how to reason and how to think no, and enough. gives the, and gives the teachers within that system 
the ability to, to raise a kind of creativity within the children. Now, I, it's like banging my head against the wall, you know, and you know, I meet sure, these politicians. Oh, this is great, you know, and I, and I walk out of the meeting, oh, great, it's going to change. Nothing does. Sure. They just look at each other, just wink. You know, when I go out of the door saying, oh, it's going to change. Nothing does. And then I go and meet teachers who say to me, wow, you know, but we can't do this, Roy, because we're conditioned. We've got to have a, we've got to go through each lesson. We are rigidly controlled. We've got to cover this, this, and this. So I thought, okay, what can I do? So I've designed, developed a, a, a training system, a teacher training system. I'm going to make this online. Sure. Where I teach teachers how to be able to maneuver through this political trap they're in and reach the human child and develop this humanness within children through the way that they teach by giving love, patience, and tolerance. So I call it the attitude, you know, well, the Anderson attitude method of teaching because it's attitude. It's the attitude of the teachers that really connect with everything. And of course, we're all human beings. So people say, well, I'm kind, I love my kids, but they have to understand really what this means. It, you know, it's like, basically it comes down to this. As I explained to you, when I went back to school when I was 20, I was very successful. There were two factors behind that. One was within me a realization that I was a kind of a, I was kind of at war with the system. I had to survive, and therefore I frantically remembered everything, and, and I really learned everything. But there was something else happened. I had a maths teacher. Now, when I was 20 years old, I didn't know what a fraction was, and uh, I went to school, back to school, and this maths teacher he took us all down to the very basic levels and explained, you know, fractions and things like that. And this teacher would occasionally come up to me and he said to me, oh, what are you trying to do, Roy? And I said, well, I don't understand. And he said, well, look, what do you really see? And he would explain to me. And he said, you can do that. And it was those very gentle words, you can do that. They kind of seeped within my psychic. And I thought, wow, if this great teacher who knows everything, you know, sure. says, I can do this, I can. And that's really the secret. We've got to enable our children to have the stamina not to give up when they try to solve something. And it comes down to this factor of love. And so I'm trying to explain to teachers this factor of giving confidence to children and helping them to understand really who they are in, in the social system within education. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I just started this course and already I've got teachers from 15 countries. Wow. Uh, it's really, yeah, really good. And I've, I had a lady from Peru join yesterday, no, that's which awesome. is really good. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but we're kind of, we're coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about the books and check out the course you just mentioned? Oh, thank you. Okay. So I have a website. My name is Roy, R-O-Y. Andersen, spelled the Danish way, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N. -E and my website is www.andersenroy, that's A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N-R-O-Y.com. Um, and andersenroy.com, there you can find out all about this online teacher training program, which I try to make as economical as possible. Uh, so I can reach more teachers and essentially then reach more children. And I've also, re I've also written now um, my seventh book, uh, Memoirs of a Happy Teacher, which some say should be the Bible for all teachers. It's a kind of a story where I, every chapter I explain uh, through a story content where I meet, meet a student or a parent who's got some concern and we find out what happens and how to solve the problem. 
And in this book are embedded so many strategies to help children to learn better. And it's really good. I just made that as an ebook, and uh, so they can find out about that on the website. And I would love any parent anywhere in the world to contact me uh, through that website or by my email address, which of course is Roy R O I at or you know, and then AndersonRoy.com. So it's R O I at A N D E R S E N R O I dot com. With any questions, any problems you've got about a child, and I do help parents all around the world who got children who got lost, just like I was, or who got disturbed or by some factor. And this actually, there's some other thing I want to just squeeze in here at the end. <clears throat> Bullying is increasing because of this smartphone addiction. And well, there's so much worry I want to explain here. Um, I don't know how long have we got left. One minute, two minutes. Uh, like a minute. Oh, Okay, smartphones, the biggest thing that are crippling our civilization. Don't give a kid to a, sm a smartphone until they're about 12 years old. They need time to develop their social skills. The parent gives the kid uh, a smartphone when they're very young, three, four years old. It does two things. It changes the brain pattern so they get restless, they can't sleep, they get their emotion, they get disturbed. And then they begin to relate only to the world through this, through the reaction to a smartphone. They lose the interest to go and play games. They don't want to play football. Girls don't want to go dancing, dressing, whatever, things like that. Their whole life is the illusion created by the smartphone. And the biggest problem then is that the parent can't talk to the child. The mother says, I want to talk to you. The child says, I don't want to talk to you. I want to play my game. The mother said, put it down. The child starts getting angry. The mother says, okay, fine. Cool. Okay, you do that and I'll have peace and happy. Everywhere I go, I see the kids playing the smartphone and the mother sitting there in blank space, failing to develop language. Now we hear that finished education is the best in the world. I don't believe it is. I lived in Denmark for 10, uh, over 10 years. And we found out that the educational systems in Scandinavia are not really that very different. What is different is that the moment a mother gives birth in Finland, the government gives her a box of books, books to read and books how to read. So the Finnish mother's reading stories to a child from very early age, a couple of months old, developing word vocabulary, um, scenarios to different situations, developing an awareness in the mind of the child to relate to that world through a higher language capability. Other countries in, in Scandinavia don't do that. Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, they don't give books to uh, to the parents. The parents give a smartphone to the kid or put the kid in front of a TV. And that's the big difference. That's what's making Finnish education the best in the world. The fact that the child is developing higher language skills. And if you look at the general world, the general child is being deprived of language skills because of his smartphone addiction. And of course, that goes into game playing, and then they're interested in studying. Well, okay, and it goes on and on and on. But this is a big factor. And everywhere I travel in the world, you know, I was in Turkey and a man came, he was really crying. He said to me, Roy, please help me. My son playing computer games eight hours every day. I can't stop him. I can't stop him. What can I do? It's a very, very big problem. No, yeah, I, well, I agree. It, like people get addicted to that, but I got to Sorry, Roy, I got to cut you off. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Thank you so much. Kevin. All right. Thank you for this. Thank you. You're good. Thank you. Okay. Bye. -bye. Thank Bye. You. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future. <laughs>